0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Jude Rogers. Being mistaken for someone else is a peculiar thing. It may have happened to you in real life or online. But what if it happens repeatedly, insistently, and then other people start to think you were a very different person? A person with very different ideas, many of them damaging and dangerous. This isn't the plot of a thriller, but the real-life experience of one of North America's best-known politics and culture writers of the last 25 years, Naomi Klein. Her books include No Logo, the brilliant dissection of how branding and consumer capitalism was, and still is, warping our world, and The Shock Doctrine, which explored the idea of disaster capitalism years before the governments of Trump and Johnson. Her new book, Doppelganger, unpicks what it's been like to be confused with another Naomi, Naomi Wolf, the writer of another 1990s bestseller, The Beauty Myth. Hi, Naomi. How are you? I'm good, Jude. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. And before we begin properly... Can you tell us about how the confusion between you and Naomi Wolf began? You know, I've already said you wrote big idea books in the 1990s, and you talk about you've, you know, have brown hair that is sometimes blonde, you're both Jewish, you know, et cetera. But but what else is going on for this mix up to happen?
1: Well, that is a good question. I mean, it has been happening for that I'm aware of for for about a decade. Um, The first time, I ever heard anybody do it in the real world was during Occupy Wall Street. People might remember in 2011, the squares of, of our major cities began to fill with young people in revolt against the ways our governments responded to the 2008 financial crisis and the inequality that, that opened up. And I had visited Occupy Wall Street and Naomi Wolf had also kind of intersected with the campers, um, but she had done it in a different way. She had decided that she was the only one who knew what the actual goals of the movement were because there had been this sort of ethos during Occupy Wall Street that they were not making demands of power. Um, It was about building out a movement. It was more radical than just like, you know, if you give us this, then we'll go away. And Naomi Wolf had kind of upset people by saying, well, no, I know what their demands are. It's this, this, and this. And so I was actually in a public restroom and there was a big march that day. And I was I was in the bathroom stall and I heard two women talking about me. And they were like, did you read what Naomi Klein's wrote? And then they were basically trashing me. And the other one said, like, oh, my God, like, she completely does not understand this movement. And I was, like, kind of frozen in the bathroom stall, you know, like, every mean girl story comes flooding back. I'm like, oh, what have I done, (laughs) you know? And I was like, and and I was just, what am I going to do? Like, do I walk out of the bathroom stall and see these people who are saying these terrible things? And then I realized the more I listened to them that they were not actually talking about me. They were talking about her. And so I walked out and I looked at, you know, met one of their eyes in the mirror and I said, I think you're talking about Naomi Wolf. I'm Naomi Klein. And they were like, oh, sorry, sorry. (laughs) Um, But... It became a kind of a metaphor for me because you know you shouldn't really never listen to people talking about you, eavesdropping on you. You know n- nothing good can ever come of that, um, mm-hmm. and that is basically what social media is. You know you're basically reading the graffiti about you on the bathroom <laughs> wall, and I've read you know a lot of that graffiti is uh, confusing me with Naomi Wolf.
0: <laughs> that story starts you know as you know, something quite funny to be brushed off. You write in the book about you and your husband, you know spotting these kind of things. Oh, there were funny. things I didn't
1: even include in the book. Like one time I was on book tour. Um, and this man, I was actually in Australia and this man who was like, I won't name him, but he's like quite a prominent author. He was introduced to me by, by my publisher and he's like, oh, we met, we, 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 we were at a Christmas party and, in, in you know, in London. And I was like, me? Like I had maybe been to London once, you know, I definitely had not been at a Christmas party with this man, you know, but he was really offended that I did not remember our encounter, which clearly was quite memorable to him. <laughs> and then I, it occurred to me afterwards, I'm like, did he think I was Naomi Wolf? Anyway, this this happens. This happens. And um, But yeah, so it, generally it was annoying. It was sometimes funny, sometimes absurd. Um, there were these kind of uncanny coincidences, like she, like I'm, I'm married to somebody named Avi, who whose actual name is Avram, but he goes by Avi and he's a film producer. And Suddenly, I had thought she was—she had been married to somebody named David, but I read in one of these—one of the articles reporting on her—well, she got arrested at Occupy Wall Street, and it was reporting on her arrest, and it says she was arrested with her partner, the film producer, Avram Ludwig. <laughs> and my my partner's name was Avi Lewis. We're like, what's happening? Why—, why? <laughs> Like, it felt like a strange Dostoevsky short story, yeah. basically. Yeah. But I think the reason it started to happen more is because we had— Pretty distinct writerly lanes when i when I was writing about you know capitalism and and neoliberalism and and um, she was writing about women's issues for the most part. but I think what started to happen around occupy was that she became interested in material that overlapped a fair bit with the shock doctrine she was really focused on civil liberties and and she she was saying that there was a coup that was taking place and and um, it just got blurrier mm. it got blurrier yeah and then things just
0: started to get a bit more sinister, you know. Things ramp up over the years, and we get to a time when all of us are at home yeah. and all of us are online. And even though you are resisting being online, you know where else do you go <laughs> to have communication I with didn't the people? That hard
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in a <laughs> pandemic.
0: Um, you write so powerfully about how the online world creates these doppelgangers mm-hmm. that. Um, how we create doppelgangers of ourselves um yeah. and obviously looking at Naomi Wolf as somebody you become conflated with in a way that becomes more uneasy online mm-hmm. can you tell the listeners the banker, about this concept you talk about called the mirror world because i think it's a good way of describing what your book delves into
1: yeah well so you know as you say this all got a lot worse during covid and in that she was incredibly active and has been continuously very active in in the COVID period in opposing basically every public health measure that our societies took to try to control the virus. So whether it was closures, whether it was masking, whether it was um, the vaccines, whatever it was, she was saying, you know, this is a coup in disguise, this is the end of Western civilization and so on but she was also really spreading some pieces of medical misinformation like i don't know if you remember the vaccine shedding theory that a lot of people fell yeah. for um and there was there was a data analysis that npr did with a polling firm looking at the origins of this idea that that women's menstrual cycles and potentially their fertility would be impacted, not if they got vaccinated, but if they were even nearby somebody else who'd got vaccinated, that their vaccine particles would shed on them and they would become, I mean, just wild stuff, right? And it turned out that she was, like, according to this analysis, like a main vector of that piece of misinformation. And, it, and, and so I, I started taking it more seriously because that has real consequences in the world like the previous stuff was just silly and embarrassing for me but really of no consequence to anyone other than me um in terms of the confusion but then I I, when she when, when I really did think that she was part of a movement that was putting a lot of people in danger I took it more seriously but also frankly you know I was locked in my own home, you know, I was isolated and all I had was my online presence, right? Like I, all the things that told me who I was in the world, like being with my friends, um, just interacting in, in the actual tangible world, I didn't have anymore. All I was, was my avatar and, and I was, I was becoming someone else. I was watching that disappear. Mm. And so I think that that is actually kind of, even though my experience is super hyper niche and specific, like, I think there is a sense that the more we are, we, we present ourselves to the world through these platforms that we don't control, the more the self feels unstable. Mm. Um, and now when you add AI on top of that, and the fact that there's digital doppelgangers of us being created by these technologies, potentially without our consent... The idea that we can control who we are, who, who we represent ourselves to the world is feeling more and more precarious. So, I, It just struck me as an interesting way, like really, honestly, like a literary device to get into these other forms of doubling. And I was interested, you know, she was deplatformed during the pandemic. She, she lost her access to her Twitter account because, because of the vaccine shedding stuff mainly, I think. Um, it really struck me as fascinating that people thought she had been deleted when what was actually happening was that she was being replatformed by Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson mm. and any number of, you know, of of these sort of alt-right podcasts. And, you know, she, she was on James Dellingpole's podcast here in the UK. And she was actually reaching more people than she had at any point, probably mm. since The Beauty Myth came out. And so I just, you know, listened to a lot of these and these shows – which none of my friends listen to. You know, when I would say, I've been listening to Steve Bannon, they'd be like, why? Why would you (laughs) listen to him? (laughs) And and I say, because he's listening to us and he's Mm. making a whole kind of mirror world with all of the issues we're neglecting. He's creating like warped versions of them. So we are not taking on this this pandemic profiteering. And so that issue gets picked up by the Steve Bannons and the Tucker Carlson's of course they don't care about big pharma. They just see that this is a fertile issue, that is power that you can build with it. And they're using it to build a really nefarious neo-fascist movement. So this mirror world is like a
0: hall of mirrors, isn't it? It's like a kind of, you know, in the fair, everything's slightly distorted and quite Mm -hmm. strange. And that's obviously an interesting metaphor to think of, you know, ourselves in that world as well. But you write about how the the other Naomi problem, as you call it, has affected your desire to end some public debates as well and yeah. comment on certain issues. Tell me about that. Yeah. So
1: I think, um, you know, one of the things that has started to happen is that we are very reactive uh, to to one another. So when an issue becomes, gets claimed by what I'm calling the mirror world. So when that happens, when it, when something becomes a big issue, for the Bannons or the Carlsons, it becomes unsayable in sort of polite liberal society. So, you know, one example of that is the idea that maybe school closures were, were going on too long. And instead of actually saying, what are our priorities? Why aren't we prioritizing our kids? It was just like, the right is against school closures. We're for them. You know, mm. a- and so, you know, or, or they were talking about the potential lab leak theory and in the, in the, in the lab in Wuhan. And it was like, well, that's OK. That's that's a crazy person subject. So now we won't even touch it. We won't even look at that. And so when so many things become unsayable, um, it really is a gift to the Bannons of the world because his political skill is he looks at what liberals have abandoned and who liberals have abandoned and who they have abused and who they have insulted and he says come over here come Mm -hmm. to the mirror world he did that's how trump was elected he um built on hillary clinton talking about you know sectors of the white working classes the deplorables they're still dining out on that (laughs) you know and that's what that's what they do in the mirror world is they look at they don't have it's not like they're actually creating jobs it's not like they're actually helping people it's they're diverting the rage and they're saying blame immigrants you know build a wall but the original sin if you will is the, is the neglect you know that that we that 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 they pick up the issues that we've abandoned
0: so we're talking about binaries here yeah. aren't we you know you write in the book about how There are binaries where thinking once lived, which is a phrase that has stuck in my head. The well versus the weak, the awake versus the sheep. Um, Where do you think that began? Um, Was it kind of, you know, the capitalism of the late 20th century or um, has online culture really ramped it up or is it lots of different things? You know, it's obviously your book is about the need for nuance and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. moving away from binaries. Mm
1: -hmm. I don't know exactly where it began, but I definitely know that it got supercharged by Trump where I am. The kind of hashtag resistance culture of just whatever they're doing, we stand in opposition. And whoever is opposing them, we stand with. I think political signals have gotten really, really scrambled. I think Steve Bannon has been a big part of that, honestly, in a lot of countries. As he builds his nationalist international, you know, he's been involved in the rise of Georgia Malone in Italy. And, you know, I see her as a kind of a doppelganger (laughs) of the politics that you know, I was writing about when No Logo came out, you know, like the the, you know, the rising anti-corporate movement. I think about Genoa in the year, in 2000, there were a million people on the streets of Genoa. It was huge. And it was during G8 summit. And this was the, you know, the so-called alter global, globalization movement. And That was a movement that was taking on corporate power. That had an analysis of capitalism. That was pro worker and pro migrant. Was concerned with the way local industries were being, you know, disappeared by this or squashed by the steamroller of corporate globalization. It had something to say. It had something to offer. But that movement kind of disappeared after September 11th, and now. You know, a couple decades later, along comes Georgia Maloney, and she's taking that analysis of transnational capital and the banks, and she's mixing it with transphobia, and she's at, and she's mixing it with xenophobia and racism. And it's, it's just like, you know, you create a vacuum, someone's going to fill it, you know? This is why, like, for me, it's not about them for me. It's about how did we give up so much territory that they could come and claim it?
0: You write very persuasively as well about how the corporate world has produced, I'm quoting you here, a playing field so rigged against consumers that mistrust and paranoia have surged. How do we work against that, do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, I what I, I say in the book, that, that conspiracy theorists get the facts wrong, but often get the feelings right. There are real conspiracies, and I think it's important to know that. And that's another thing that we shouldn't cede to the mirror world, this idea that, we become so credulous right that it's almost like anybody who th- would possibly think there's a conspiracy is some kind of wingnut it's i don't know like the shock doctrine is 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 mm. chapter after chapter of real world conspiracies that happened and that we can prove, whether it's the overthrow of Mossadegh or Allende, the meddling after the collapse of the Soviet Union and propping up Yeltsin. And these are conspiracies that we know happen. I mean, if you define conspiracy as, you know, some kind of a, a plot or plan hatched in the shadows, often hurting majorities of people in the affected mm-hmm. areas, I feel like that's what the shock doctrine was about. And I'm not willing to to cede that territory. Um but these sort of okay, let's call them conspiracy fantasists, right? I, I, I think that they are tapping into a feeling that maybe the vaccine apps weren't tracking us, but maybe our cell phones are. You know, maybe QAnon. It, it obviously is wrong that that the elites are draining our youth of their adrenochrome so they can live forever. But we are draining the future of our planet for for young people. So I think it's really important to understand what the feelings are that are being played on, right? I mean, Mm. this is another thing that I think is very dangerous that I see more and more, is just saying it's all conspiracy, and anybody who thinks that power might conspire is a loon.
0: I wanted to ask a little bit more about this idea of you know, online culture. You, know, you write about how life online encourages to perform as doppelgangers ceaselessly in the digital ether as a price of admission um, and by people branding mm. themselves, obviously. Um, what is it like to see, you know, that culture ongoing, you know, tw- nearly 25 years after <laughs> No loco came out?
1: Yeah, I mean no logos touchingly naive um because this was only you know when I was writing about personal branding but it was just celebrities who could do that it wasn't like regular normal people who could be their own brands although that was just starting to be su- suggested as the book you know as I was writing the book there was there was this idea that you could be a brand called you and i wrote about that mm. but i wrote about it mockingly like how silly could you be that that just like like it's one thing for oprah to do it but normal people don't have ad budgets normal people don't have you know pr consultants or stylists so how can how how is that even possible and the way we understood it was this was just a way of making people feel better about having contracts instead of jobs and not having any security. Just brand up, you know, just, just compete. And I think that's true. That's, that's how it started. But what ch- what changed after No Logo came out, you know, No, no Logo came out, it was the cusp of, of a new world. You know, I wrote that book with dial-up. Um, But by the time it came out, I had high speed and, you know, by the time the shock doctrine came out, I had my iPhone and I could, you know, I had my own advertising agency essentially in my pocket as we all do. Right. And that's what that's that's what social media enabled is that you could brand yourself without an ad budget. But I still think it's important to remember why we're doing it. You know, we're doing it because we're afraid. We're doing it because we're terrified of being roadkill. So that's the thing about doppelgangers: is that they may think that you're attacking your doppelganger, but you're you're always looking at yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, one one thing I feel about my own doppelganger is that she shows me the parts of myself that I like least, chasing online attention and afraid of becoming irrelevant. Like she shows me really the bad place that it can go to. She's not the only one who shows me that. She's she's one of several high profile people who kind of realized there was more attention to be had on the kind of Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, you know, side of the spectrum, end of the spectrum. This is not about her, it's not about me. It's really about a culture that rewards this kind of clout chasing, this kind of, you know, attention seeking. As the price of admission, you're saying it's not about her, and I it absolutely is. And you know, the book
0: uses it as a jumping-off point. This experience you've had to delve into so many things. But I wanted to ask you, were you at all nervous about writing this book, be- given it is about you know, in some places, some really detailed criticisms of a specific person? And I have to say, there are some very good withering lines um, you say about her cosplaying Rosa Parks at one point, which did make me laugh out loud. But um, there is. Because this, this attention on this one person, did that make you,
1: give you pause sometimes? It did, yeah. But, you, you know, she just kept doing more extraordinary things as I was writing the book and started to feel more significant. You know, when I started doing this research and, and thinking about this could be an interesting sort of like an, a, a narrow aperture to look at a lot of different things that I'm interested in. Um, that was before she was going on Steve Bannon's podcast. Um, You know, at one point she was on his podcast every single day for two weeks. She's basically a co-host of the podcast. I mean, she really is on all the time. They've co-written a book together. They made T-shirts together. So in that sense, I don't feel that worried about it. You know, I write about people who have power. I mean, I write, write about Milton Friedman. You know, I write about Hayek. I write about people, I mean, not to put her in that category, but I write about... People who stand in for broader worldviews and ideologies. And she began to stand in for a particular type of ex leftist or ex liberal that is lending really important legitimacy to forces in many different countries who I think are extremely dangerous like I think Steve Bannon needs her because he needs to say this is postpartisan this is beyond left right look I'm here with this ex-advisor to Al Gore and prominent feminist and that proves that this is a bipartisan project it's a fascist project um and that th- the liberals that are lending legitimacy to it I think do need to be held to account but I would say as a feminist, you know, as a woman, I, you know, the part that worries me is like, um, oh, it's like a Naomi cat fight or whatever. No, this, like, I try to bring it again and again to what this is telling us about, about systems, you know, and I try to write, I try to make maps, you know, in my books, like I try to help orient people. Mm. With this book, I think I'm mapping um, something so complex and what's particularly complex is the re- relationship to reality, right? It's a we're living in a really vertiginous time, right? We feel this. Who can I trust? Who is real? What is real? And so, it felt like something I could only write from inside it, and it had to be weird. Like mm-hmm. it had the form had to match the function. I couldn't just be outside of this waving my finger and going like, "Oh, these people." It had to. I had to be implicated because I am, and we all are. You know. Mm. So. Think of that in relation to now,
0: as we come to the end of this podcast, are there any notes of hope we can take, um, you know, from your book and from other conversations around these topics? So we're not, you know, yeah, desperately <laughs> thinking of our doppelgangers
1: and giving, you know, delving into despair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what became clear to me as I went on this weird journey <laughs> is that this connective thread was just the outsized role of the individual self in the face of collective crises. I mean, that's that's what we try to do when we burnish our brands and we, you know, work so hard to represent ourselves just so, you know, online. And the sort of mania of the attention economy and the people who really lose it and will just do anything to get those clicks, there's something just so odd about the size of the self getting larger and larger even as the crises that we face um, are so clearly ones that we can only face through collective action, right? And so it's so hard to work collectively when you're seeing everything through the lens of yourself. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves. But there's something really powerful and beautiful about realizing how much stronger we are together in common struggle, protest and unionization and we need that like yes we need to individuate but we also need to dissolve and there's something really cool I'll, I'll tell you one thing I'm grateful about about my doppelganger is I think that I was probably taking myself way too seriously before all this and there's something about watching like your public image just kind of just spiral so completely out of your control that you just have to surrender and just be like, you know what? Who cares? It was very freeing for me to just kind of write in my own voice and really not care all that much. <laughs> um, I mean, wh- like, what do I care what people can think of me if a significant portion of the population thought that I thought you could, like, you know, become infertile by being near people who had been vaccinated, you know? Um, at this point, I should just kind of worry less about myself. And I think there's lots of evidence that a lot more people are tasting the possibility of collective power. You know, we see that in union drives and rent strikes and people just like exercising a a collective muscle. And yeah, I, I take a lot of hope in that. Thank you so much for
0: joining us today in The Bunker, Naomi. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Always remember to get the surname right, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if you like, we've heard you can support The Bunker on Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast and Patreon. And for as little as £3 a month, you can help us continue to make the shows you know and love. I'm Jude Rogers. Thanks for listening. I will see you again soon. Good news.
1: And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Bunker was presented by Jude Rogers. and Produced by Liam Tate. Assisted by Adam Rowe. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber.
1: Art by Jim Parrott. And social media by Jess Harvey. Our music is from Kenny Dickinson managing editor is jacob jarvis group editor andrew harrison and the bunker is a podmasters production